Now, I will say I started this series in Colossians back in, I think, June of 2015. So if you're new to our church, I'm not the preacher every week. Uh, it hasn't taken me two years uh, to get to this point. I, I just preach periodically, and so every time I've, I've preached since uh, June of 2015, I've been just slowly going through the, the book of Colossians here. But uh, just to give us a little reminder of the background of the book before we, we stand and read it together, um, Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church, a church that he had never met. So you're asking, why, why did he write a letter to this, this church? Well, Epaphras, uh, a, a citizen of Colossae, had, had traveled and seen Paul preach, came to Christ, and then went back to Colossae and, and preached that gospel there, and a church came up from that. Uh, there was some concerns, though, as the church grew, that there were, there were some false teachers in the church. And these teachers were uh, very prideful, arrogant uh, men. Um, they taught that uh, whatever happens in the physical realm, whatever sins you commit with your body has nothing to do with your relationship with God. The spiritual realm was separate from the physical realm. Uh, and so Epaphras goes to Paul and says, help, uh, what do I do here? And Paul says, relax, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to send it with you and some other letters also and and you read that to the Colossian church and that's what we have in front of us is this letter uh, to the Colossian church. Um, one uh, commentator uh, wrote, wrote this about the book of Colossians. He says, Christ, the, the theme is Christ is Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He has secured redemption for his people and enabling them to participate with him in his death Resurrection and fullness. And I think you'll see that theme even through the passage we're going to read this morning. If you look at Colossians 3 verses 1 through 17, you'll see a bit of a structure here. Uh, Gospel put off, gospel put on. And in my last sermon, we covered that first part, gospel put off. And as Paul is in that put off, you, you can look there in kind of verses 5, 6, 7, 8 there. You see a lot of things Paul says to to put off there. And you can kind of envision the Colossian churches are hearing these things like, oh boy, that's a lot, that's a lot to put off. And so Paul says, okay, but wait a minute, verse 10, here's the gospel again. Remember, it's the gospel that helps you to put off. And then he lists some things to put on. So what we see here is this intrinsic need for us as people to not forget the gospel as we endeavor to grow in our relationship with God. The gospel is not just for the day of salvation. It's for every day. It's for our sanctification. It couldn't be more true, uh, more apparent in the scripture than here in Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 17. But would you stand with me if you're able? And let, let, let me read verses 10 through 17 for us. Let me back up to 9 just to start at the beginning of the sentence. Do not, do not lie to one another, seeing that you had put off the old self with its practices, Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now here's the put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may have a seat. Let me start us this morning just with a a, a quick story. When I was a kid, uh, I was a big fan of, of two musical artists. Uh, one was Stephen Curtis Chapman, who's, I think, still producing music today in the kind of Christian music realm. The other one was the great theologian Michael Jackson. Um, you probably can't find two artists more different uh, than these two, two artists. Uh, but both were influential to me as a kid. In 1987, uh, Michael Jackson uh, released a song called Man in the Mirror. Let me read you some of the lyrics. And if you know the song, I defy you to get the tune out of your head after I read these lyrics. Um, I'm going to make a change for once in my life. It's going to feel real good. It's going to make a difference. Going to make it right. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the change. I took a lot of the beeps and boops in his voice out of the, the lyric there as I, as I read it. It was very hard not to do it. Um, but change his ways. Uh, that, that's something I think even... Uh, the most uh, defiant person in this world would say at, at some core of their being, I, I'd like to make some changes in my life. Uh, but the question is, how do we, how do, we do that? You know, as a, as a teenager in, in 1987, I, I looked at these lyrics and I thought, okay, that's what I want. I'll look in the mirror and I'll just say, make a change. Um, the problem is it was just too shallow of a thing to do. It, there was no root, there was no power behind that desire to make a change. Here's what I realized. I, I'm not really a nice person. Uh, deep down inside, I also don't want to change. I, I want to live out my selfish desires and my selfish ways for my selfish gain. Now, spoiler alert, I think you're in my same boat. Uh, deep down inside, we are selfish people. We, we can look at our own observations of our lives and, and realize that. And then we look at the scripture and we see all over the scripture the fact that we are sinful sinners that sin. There's no way out of our plight. Uh, We can't just look in the mirror and say, I want to make a change. So what do we do? It seems like we need more than just looking in the mirror and asking for change. Where does it all start? Well, that's our message big idea from Colossians 3, 10 through 17. It's this. A transformed heart leads to a transformed life. We need open heart surgery. It's a transformed heart that leads to a transformed life. And that transformation only comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a God who is holy and just and can't be around sin. And that's our problem as man is we are full of sin. But he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for sin that we justly deserve to pay ourselves. And we can respond to that offer of that penalty being paid by believing and, and placing our faith that Christ is enough to pay for our sin. And then we can have that transformed heart. But, so what's true of this transformed heart? Let's look at our, our first point here. What's true of this transformed heart? We, we look back at, at verse 10 here. And it says, have put on, that we have put on the new self. Which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. This idea of putting on is like putting on new clothes. The put off that's mentioned earlier in the chapter is the idea of taking off old clothes casting them aside, and literally putting on new clothes. 
the tense here is that you have put on new clothes. So what's that mean? If you placed your faith in Christ, you are a new creation. Your standing before God is that you are blameless. Your standing before God is that you are faultless. Your standing before God is that you are holy. You have on new clothes. You have a completely new identity. A true believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ has that position before him. Now the challenge, the challenge with that is aligning our behavior kind of into that new identity. Aligning our behavior in line with these new clothes. Now, if you serve in our children's ministries or our youth ministry, or, or maybe you're just out in the hallways here at Five Points and, and you see a child or a youth that has, you believe is a Christian, they've said they're a Christian, and, and they're caught up in some type of sinful behavior at the time. It can be our temptation as people to say, hey, knock it off, will you? Just cut it out. Here, here's what I think is a better way to address that. Stop being who you aren't and be who you are. Did you think you were wearing those old clothes again? Oh, you're not. You, you want the new clothes on. I know you do. You want that joy-filled life that leads to so much more than that sin that you're chasing. You want that. I know that because the Holy Spirit's in you and you have a new identity. Now, to illustrate this a little bit more, some of you know my family. We have four children in our family. Three were brought to our family uh, biological means. One was brought to our family through adoption. And, and uh, our, our fourth child, Sadie, uh, was from Ethiopia. And, and uh, you can tell her, her melanin is a different, different color than the melanin in the rest of her, her family. And so sometimes we get some looks as we walk into restaurants or into to stores. Um, she was adopted into our, our family. She was four months old, and, and now she's eight. What would it be like if today we go home for lunch after church and she says, oh, Dad, um, would it be okay if I got some milk out of the fridge? Could, could I have some lunch today? Could I have some food? Well, what would we do? We look at Satan, why, why are you asking that? Go, go, go get in the fridge. Go, go get some. You're, you're a Davidson. Right? You're, you're, you have a new idea. You're not a visitor here. You're not someone here that's just kind of come to visit and then we might ship you out later. In fact, her birth certificate says, Sadie Denise Davidson, U.S. citizen. She is, her, her old name was McDelawit. And her new name is Sadie. She has a whole new identity now. And so as we ponder that reality, I can say to my kids, I know one of you's adopted, I just can't remember which one. Because that's true, right? She's no less a Davidson than anybody else in our household. And that's true of us as believers. We have a new identity. We've shed those old clothes and we've put on completely new clothes. Now, we have this new identity and that's our position, but in our condition, we are still in need of being renewed. We still struggle with sin, and we see that here in, in verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Our condition is one that is still in need of transformation. When one comes to Christ, they're not instantly spiritually mature. They still struggle. 
our flesh continues to say, those old garments are better than the new ones. I, I typed into Google, change yourself, just to see what would come up, what kind of renewal information I could get from Google. And here's what I got. To change yourself, you first need to assess your needs, identify problems, do self-affirmations, visualize your changed future, expect disruption, learn from failure, and be patient. Now, this isn't necessarily bad advice per se, but will these things bring lasting results? I don't want to make fun of these options because I think probably the writer of these were, were very, was very well-intentioned. Um, they were trying to make sense of their world based on their worldview. This is what I, you know, this is what I think is, is best. But my concern is the root of these suggestions. What are these principles rooted in? We need renewing, but in what ways? Is it through self-affirmations and visualizing our changed future or is it in the knowledge of God? The Bible says it's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is no spiritual maturity without knowledge of God, of the God that we follow. Some might say, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna love Jesus and leave the Bible study and the Bible reading to other people. That's foreign concept to the scriptures. Romans 12, 2, Ephesians 4, 22, all talk about the need for the renewing of our mind to biblical truth. And the knowledge spoken of here in Colossians 3 isn't just this light knowledge of God. I have a light knowledge of vehicles. I know they need four tires on them. I, I know they have a steering wheel. I know where to put the gas in the car. I've changed the oil before, but after that, I'm pretty limited in my knowledge. But there's this other realm of people that just know everything there is about a car, how the pistons fire, how the engine works, all these things. I, I'm not there, I'm here. The knowledge talked about in Colossians 3 is here. It's an in-depth knowledge of God aggressively pursuing knowledge of God. That's where this renewal comes from. I, I grew up in a small rural church, um, a church that, quite frankly, we didn't really bring our Bibles to church very much, uh, except for Jim. Jim brought his Bible to church, and uh, Jim usually sat in the pew ahead of me. There's these things called pews that they have in churches. There's these, these long benches they, they don't even like fold up on you. They just, they stay down the whole time. I don't know if you've heard of these before, but uh, Jim sat in the pew ahead of me and, and uh, Jim had this three ring binder he would open up when the sermon was about to be preached and he would lay his Bible on one side. I, I just picture Jim right now. He would lay his Bible on the right side and he'd put a notepad here and get his pen and he'd kind of get in this stance like, come on, bring it on. I want to know the truth. I want to hear God's word taught. Jim even had a filing system for his notes. What a freak, right? I thought, Jim, relax, buddy. Kind of just skate through this sermon thing and then it's on to football and food. Jim wanted that knowledge. He wanted the renewing of his, of his mind. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia wrote this. Uh, Aslan, the, the, the lion in the story, the, the godlike figure, is talking to Lucy, a little girl. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. 
but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What's Lewis getting across here? As we are renewed in our mind in the knowledge of God, our picture of God grows and we see him in his grandeur and all that he is. What's the goal of that knowledge? Is to then become conformed to the image of his son, of Christ. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, what else is true of this transformed heart? Look at verse 11. What else is true of this transformed heart? There is a new identity here. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This new identity, you see, is, is all-encompassing. We, we label ourselves with these earthly identities and we think that's our priority, but in Christ, those become submissive to our greater identity. See, in Christ, the church collectively, we put off those old identities. See, in the church, there's no room for racial barriers between us. In the church, there's no room for social, economic barriers. There's no room for barriers for those with disabilities and those with different abilities. There's no place for that in Christ's church. And that's what Paul is saying here. You see, the, the divide in the time of the writing of the letter is no different than the divide that still exists today in our world. Paul gives us some examples of this from his world. He first talks about the Greek and the Jew, the, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. There's this kind of this upper echelon of people that are very educated people, classically trained, very eloquent in their speech, okay? And then you have these barbarians and Scythians, um, not very eloquent in their speech. Um, barbarians are, by the very term, uh, barbaric, right? And these Scythians, they were like the, the barbarians of barbarians, uh, murderous people. Um, in fact, I can't even tell you all the things that the Scythians would do after they killed people because, just because of the nature of kids being in the room. Uh, but just barbaric, uh, hopelessly lost people. And here's what John MacArthur says. A fellowship including Greeks and Jews and Scythians was unthinkable in the ancient world. Yes, that is precisely what happened in the church. Christ demolished the cultural barrier separating men. There was no slave or free. You know, slaves in this time were seen as a tool that was living. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. If Christ is all, and is in all, then none of the barriers can exist in the church today. We are all one. That's what's true of the transformed heart. In that earthly example of my daughter Sadie, she is now a Davidson. Her adoption puts a new identity on her birth certificate. But even that, if she professes Christ, she has a greater identity. I'm part of God's church. That's the nature of God's economy. That's the nature of God's kingdom. We are all the same. Our identity in him supersedes all other identities. There are no distinctions. So you might come in here today uh, thinking that you're kind of damaged goods. There's other people in this, this worship service that seem like they really have it all together. 
I'm kind of damaged goods. Well, if you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ, that's not true. That's not your identity. Your identity is you're a child of the king. You're a prince or a princess, an heir to the throne. If you're not a Christian and you think you're damaged goods today, there's a way for those goods to be repaired. (laughs) Your sins can be forgiven today. Are you stuck in a cycle of sin, believer? Let me exhort you, be who you are. Live out your identity. What are you identifying yourself as? If someone said to you, who are you? What would you say? Would you give some type of poor substitute? I'm a dad who provides well for his family. I'm a mom and I have it all together. Just check my social media. I can plan parties and wash animals and I can do everything. I'm, I'm a college student. I have it all together. I'm a youth group kid and, and uh, I don't struggle with comparing myself to other people. No, 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 no. <laughs> You're a child of the king. That is your primary identity. So, brother and sister, are you, are you united with your fellow brothers and sisters. Do you believe that others in this room are maybe a lower class spiritually? That's not true. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. Do you believe that you're a lower class Christian in this room? That's not true. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. Do you look around the room and do you struggle to make judgments on other people? Or is there someone you need to seek reconciliation with? Because the transformed heart says, brother, sister, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. That's what's true of the transformed heart. Let us who believe the lie that the study of the Bible isn't for me, it's for others, repent of that and ask for others to help me to study the Bible. Let us who believe the lie that we should live in our old clothes, walk in our new identity and ask for grace and care from others at Bethany for help to do so. You see, there should be this, and I believe I've seen this, this sweet, endearing, careful love for each other in our churches. We should be saying things like this. Let me serve you by being okay with hearing a crying child during the sermon. We should say things like this. Let me serve you by leaving with my crying child during the sermon. But what a sweet picture it would be, right? To see a mom or dad leaving with their crying child and the rest of us say, no, stay. We want you to hear God's word taught. I'll take your child. I'll do whatever I can to serve you. How can I serve you? Let me as a single person serve you as a, as a mom by, can I just take your kids to school this week? I've never done that before. Let me take your kids to school this week. Let me as a, as a parent serve you single person by making a bit more dinner this week in every batch that I make so I can give some to you. Let me as a senior saint serve the nursery and refrain from thinking I've paid my dues. Let me as a dad serve you as a senior saint to say what projects do you have in your home that I can help you with? Let me as an Anglo ask a person of another ethnicity about their experience as an ethnic minority in the U.S. Let me, a U.S. born citizen, ask a person adopted from another country about their past heritage or a story of their adoption. Let me, who can't fathom what it's like to look at my plate and see it empty of food, serve those that have through Bethany's benevolence follow-up or through Bethany's partnership with local agencies and groups. This is what the transformed heart does. That's just who we are. That's what we do. So what else is true of this transformed heart? 
Well, he or she does all these things through a transformed life. And let's look at what is true of a transformed life. Put on then as God's chosen ones, it says in verse 12, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let me stop there because I don't have time to, to read through all this and get through, look at the screen folks, 11 things that are true of a transformed life. You thought you were getting to football and food? Ha! But here's what we're gonna do, okay? We're gonna do this family feud style to keep you engaged with me. I'm gonna say what's true of a transformed life, survey said, and then we'll read what number one says here, all right? So you ready for that? We've got 11 attributes of a transformed life and not long to get through it. So what's true of a transformed life? Number one, survey said, read it with me, have a compassionate heart, not the physical heart, obviously. This is the seat of the emotions. One could think of the idea of a compassionate heart as, as at the very core of who you are, be a merciful and compassionate person, all right? What's our propensity in our old clothes? Selfishness with my time, selfishness with my money, selfishness with my talents. The call here is to look beyond our own nose and put others' needs, especially those who are suffering, those in need, before our own. What's true of a transformed life? Number two, survey said, read it with me, be kind. This is not just a call to be nice. Pet kittens, help people across the street. One commentator says this, it's the call to allow the grace of God to wash over you completely and then to wash over those around you. Kindness just exudes from us. It flows from us as a lifestyle. You know the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 12? Even if those who aren't familiar with the Bible are, are pretty familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, we, we sometimes say, boy, that, that Samaritan, what an extraordinary kindness the Samaritan showed. That's who we are. It's not really extraordinary. Think about it. That's, that's what the, if you, let, if you let the kindness of God wash over you, Good Samaritan just comes out of us, right? It washes to those around us. It's normal. What's true of a transformed life? Number three, survey says, be humble. Humility was not valued at the time of the writing of this letter. Uh, the arrogant false teachers in the Colossian church were exuding pride. And Christianity brings humility up as over and above pride as a virtue to be sought after. It's the antidote to selfishness and self-love. Uh, our church has existed for about nine years. Uh, I think others would, would agree with me when I'd say in the last year, there has been more hurt and, and pain in individuals' lives and, and, and situations and illnesses and cancer in our church more than any other year in our church. And I have seen the humility of believers in this church serve others in an amazing way. My faith has been strengthened by seeing you serve others who are hurting and the humility that you've shown. And so I thank you for showing that humility to me and my family. What's true of a transformed life? Number four, survey says, be meek. Or it's sometimes translated gentleness here. Closely related to humility here, but, but meaning a willingness to take on suffering without a response. A willingness to take on suffering 
without a response. Being meek recognizes one's own sinfulness. And when another person sins against us, our response is meek. It's not, I'm going to seek revenge on you who just sinned against me. It's, I'm going to have compassion towards you because of your sin towards me. How radical is that in today's culture, right? You just sinned against me, well, watch me get you back. Meekness says, you just sinned against me, I'm going to pray for you. I love you. I'm going to show compassion and mercy towards you. What's true of a transformed life? Number five, survey says, be patient. This is the opposite of resentment and revenge. Uh, we, we've had a discussion in our home uh, that goes along the lines of this. Being annoyed is a choice. What do we say about annoying people? They're so annoying, and if they weren't so annoying, I wouldn't be so annoyed at that annoying person. Their fault. Being annoyed is a choice. It's you saying, I will not have patience towards that person. No matter what their behavior is, how high-pitched squeal their voice gives, or how, what they've done in, in their practice towards me, I'm choosing to be annoyed at them and not to show patience towards them. Being annoyed is a choice. This patience here we're called to, as one writer says, others' foolishness never drives the patient person to cynicism, despair, bitterness, or wrath. It's not becoming tired of that person. It's welcoming them. What's true of a transformed life? Number six, survey says, bear with one another. To hold out in spite of persecution, threats, injury, indifference, or complaints, and not retaliate. In 1 Corinthians 6, 7, uh, Paul writes the Corinthians, who are believers, taking each other to court. And you know what he says to those, those, those Corinthian Christians who are taking each other to court, suing one another? You know what he says? Why not be wronged? Why not be defrauded rather than take a fellow believer to court? Right, bear with one another. What's true of a transformed life? Number seven, survey says, forgive each other. Forgive each other. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You've heard this illustration before if you've been here long enough, but person one sins X amount of sin against person two. Person two wants to strike revenge on person one for the sin committed against him. But person two then looks vertical and says, if this person sinned against me X amount of times, how much have I sinned against God? X? No. And X times infinity is how much I've sinned against God. And what's God's response to me? Grace, mercy, acceptance and love now I'm going to exact revenge against you wait a minute what have I gotten from God grace mercy acceptance and love for infinity amount of sins and you've just sinned against me x amount of times my response to you is going to be what grace mercy acceptance and love we forgive each other as God forgave me so I forgive him or her as God has forgiven me. What is true of a transformed life? Number eight, survey says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love binds all these things together. Think of all these things listed up here on the screen above me. All these virtues are like individual stalks of wheat and love is the string that binds them together. 
and we pull tight and love is the foundation of those things. What's true of a transformed heart? Number nine, survey says, let peace rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Thankfulness runs throughout this whole passage, right? Uh, but we see, let the peace of Christ rule. This peace here, it's not just, oh, I hope I can find peace today in my relationship with God. This, uh, I can't really find peace, but I hope I find peace. This peace is, if you are justified in Christ, you have the peace. It's a pact. It's an agreement. You can't get rid of peace. You have peace as a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says, let that peace rule inside your soul. Rule this idea of an umpire, an athletic competition. He rules over the field. Let that peace, that justification, that, that I'm a follower of his, I'm marked by the Holy Spirit, let it rule in your life. That's what's true of a transformed heart. And if we all do that, we're unified in one body. We're unified in one body and we're thankful. Number 10, what's true of the transformed heart? Transformed life survey says, Dwell in the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This idea of dwelling is to allow the word to live inside of us, to be at home inside. It's like we crack open our chest and we just feed the word in there. It lives inside of us and it lives inside of us richly, abundantly, extravagantly. The word lives inside of us. We dwell in the word. It results in these two things. Speaking and singing. It results in us teaching positive things about the word. It results in kind of a negative warning, this admonishing of each, of each other, helping each other, restoring one another in all wisdom. Both the result of the word overflowing in our lives. So involved in the speaking, teaching and admonishing, but also results in singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to the Lord. This idea of, of uh, psalms, literally the psalms, you know what those are in the Old Testament. The idea of hymns, meaning praise songs that we had sing directly to God where we say you and we're singing directly to God. And then these spiritual songs are kind of testimonial songs. We've sung some of those already this morning where we're singing about what God has done together, kind of testifying to God's goodness to us. I, I love Mike, Pastor Mike said to me, uh, said something to me uh, this week I loved in regards to singing. It's putting the right words in our mouths. And we're gonna sing a song here in a little bit. Um, Jesus, thank you. Once an enemy, now seated at your table. I, I love that lyric. And we're gonna sing that as we close. And usually I don't know about you, but when, when we close, I'm, I'm kind of packing up a little bit and, and maybe getting my jacket on or making sure all my notes are together. And then there's this song playing. And then about halfway through, I'll engage with it. And I'm so thankful for these rich songs that we sing because it kind of snaps me out of my food and football mentality. I'm out of here. I was once an enemy. And now I'm seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. So thankful for these words that, 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 that give me the right words in my mouth. What's true of the transformed life? Number 11, survey says, do all in his name. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. Do some things? No, do everything. The transformed life wants to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the desire of a transformed heart. Look at this list here. Uh, my encouragement to you is pick one. 
pick one. You'd say, I want to trust the Lord for transformation in my life out of a transformed heart. Don't forget the gospel as you do this. Don't pick one and say, I'm just gonna try harder. Admit your need. Admit, God, I, I can't just try harder. I need your supernatural power. And I'm thankful for the gospel that makes that a reality. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath is completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. I was once your enemy, now I'm seated at your table. What we need to do, if you pick one of these things, uh, remember the gospel, find passages of scripture to study on this topic, a book to read, accountability to, to seek out. Uh, remember not to lose focus on the gospel. It's only from this transformed heart that transformed life comes. Now, 22 years after Man in the Mirror was released, Stephen Curtis Chapman released a song uh, called Live Out Loud. Um, it's a little dated because it references uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire by Regis Philbin. Remember that show? Lyrics are a little dated. I'm going to read them anyway. Stephen Curtis Chapman sings this in the song. I get a phone call from Regis. He says, do you want to be a millionaire? Then he puts me on the show and I win with two lifelines to spare. Now picture this. I act like nothing ever happened. I bury all the money in a coffee can. Well, I've been given more than Regis ever gave away. I was a dead man who was called to come out of my grave. I think it's time for making some noise. Wake the neighbors. Get the word out. Come on, crank up the music, climb a mountain and shout. This is life we've been given, made to be lived out. So live out loud. It's more than just looking in the mirror and saying, I want to make a change. We've been given life. A transformed heart leads to that transformed life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us this life through the gospel. As we sing this last song, would you just engage our affections and may we sing this loud for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.